Well, welcome to Halfway There, my friends. Eric Nevins here. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. And I had the pleasure of sitting through uh, a conference and some really great teaching from our guest today a couple weeks ago. And I'm just really excited to share him with you. Um, he's been a pastor and he's going to share his story and some of the stuff that he's um, teaching now. So please welcome to Halfway There, Mark Waltz. Hi, Mark. Welcome to Halfway There. Hey, Eric. Thank you. Great to be with you today. I'm so glad to make this connection and uh, really enjoyed the conference we had here at uh, at our church a few weeks ago about people welcoming people. That was that was really cool. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm always amazed at the participation and connection that um, the material makes with ordinary people because I just have an ordinary story to tell. So right. Yeah. Well, this has been something that you've done for a long time. Um, and so I want to hear a little bit about that, but tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and then we'll go back and see how God's led you there. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so now I'm, I'm really leaning into a sense of calling and purpose that comes from much of the journey that, as you said, we'll unpack a bit. And that is really to come alongside individuals, come alongside organizations, and considering the full story and embracing every part of the story, whether that's the story of an organization or the story of an individual, um, and embracing the whole of it so that we can find wholeness. I want to come alongside people and help them find redemption and experience redemption from their story and, um, and see the radical acceptance and hope that comes from God uh, when, we, when we bring our whole selves to him. Uh, that's, that's really the, the gist of it. Now, that takes form in training and consulting with churches who have any interest at all in creating spaces and environments that meet people right where they are. And it also puts me alongside individuals who want to, uh, over a couple-day journey, kind of unpack and understand where they are, how they got there, and um, get real perspective from their story so they can understand their core talents and core values and leave with a sense of purpose and direction for their own lives. Yeah, so important. I love what you say about connecting with the whole person and, um, you know, embracing their whole story because there's always more to the story. And sometimes the reason I think we don't get other people is because we don't know the rest of the story. Right. And we make all kinds of assumptions Yeah. So, about either behavior or where someone is in their, in their life. Um, and it's really, it's so easy to assume and even judge uh, based on lifestyle behavior. And when I say behavior, I mean little small things. You know, we, we're quick to judge the the server who doesn't get our order right. Um, and we can narrowly see that through a lens of service that ought to be accurate with me and miss. They have a real life beyond the restaurant right. <laughs> or the organization they're serving. And, um, and yeah, we just make assumptions. 
Yeah, absolutely. That was actually one of my big takeaways from the whole conference is that, you know, if we can just stop thinking about behavior and judging everyone based on that, um, you know, and that that's hard as an evangelical to say, right? Because I care about morality, (laughs) but on the other hand, I care about people because God cares about people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Well, okay. So take us back in your story and, uh, I don't know, when did you, when did you come to Christ? I'm one of those, uh, all those church kids who, Mm -hmm. you know, as I'm, as I'm told anyway, was in church since I was two weeks old. So, um, I grew up only knowing about, in fact, the first probably 18 years of my life, um, it was church service on Sunday morning and church service Sunday night and a church service on Wednesday night. And then any other time the doors were open, um, you know, a couple times a year, it was a week-long revival meeting. And if that went long, then you went too. So um, I grew up um, immersed in a religious environment uh, that was rather fundamental. And so it was probably 12 years. I was 12 years old when I uh, was baptized and began to own my own faith. And, and that said, um, I I think the journey of owning my own faith is still a process. You know, I think years ago I would have said, you, you know, I came to Christ when I was 12 truth is he'd come to me long before that and i finally recognized you know um but it took me it took me many years past 12 years of age to move from performance driven focus to a relational experience where i experienced grace um so i'm a little bit beyond your question except to say that I mean, I think I came uh, to understand initially as much as I was able to at the time around 12 years of age. Gotcha. Yeah. And you mentioned that it was kind of a fundamentalist church. I'm sure that shaped you in many ways. It did. Um, I think if I were to go back now and ask anyone, whether that's, you know, parents, church leaders, pastors, uh, in my growing up years, was that experience about relationship or religion? I, the answer would be relationship, but my experience was religion. Um, my experience was that the relationship was predicated on performance. And so while the message was grace, um, the experience was one of earning. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the last... In the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, as I've, um, we're, we're in a very dense populated area here of uh, folks from the Catholic faith uh, being near Notre Dame. And I would often hear from, from, our, from my Catholic friends, you know, boy, growing up, it was all about works and getting it right. And, and I began to realize we have a lot in common in our, in our history. Um, mm-hmm. I, I may have grown up Protestant, but um, and the background is all about works. Uh, again, even though theologically, um, if I pressed, that wouldn't be the stated position, but it certainly was what I experienced. Right. What did that disparity do either for or to you? How did you understand it or make sense of it? 
I think it wasn't until until high school when I began to participate with some students from other churches in a like faith and denomination, got outside my local church and began to see students who who didn't uh, act outside the norms of what it is to follow Jesus, but certainly did so with more liberty than I'd ever been used to. And I began to question well before college then. Um, so what what are all these rules and how important are they? And um, I think one of the things I noticed was this sense of joy um, in even students who were not as bound to getting it right as I seem to be. Um, and that shaped, that's a, I would not say that that shaping began profoundly in me. It was well into my adult life before I recognized that I was a recovering Pharisee. And, um, and so when you ask about shaping, yeah. you know, there are profound experiences like the first 10 years of our marriage where I projected an expectation of perfection and getting it right and being very concerned with what other people thought onto my wife. And, um, you know, I now understand looking back that discipleship and following Jesus and living the norms of, of what it is to live grace, uh, if they don't show up at home, um, they're not authentically showing up anywhere and they weren't showing up well at home. And, um, I made for a very, very, um, frankly, hellish experience for for my wife, who stepped into a relationship believing that it was one of acceptance and and love, and that became really confusing for her. Um, that, like I had experienced growing up, hearing one thing but living through something else. I, I created that same environment, which, you know, as I came to grips with that years later, um, was horrifying to me. Um, so yeah, it, it has shaped a great, a great deal. Um, how I see myself, how I see God, how I see others. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's taken the last 25 years of my life to kind of begin to understand that and, Honestly, the change comes in embracing the grace with which God loves me, you know, so that's kind of the bottom line. Yeah, well, you do that with so much grace yourself and openness. Um, you know, I just really admire that. Um, take us through a little bit more about how you, so how you were, you were learning and growing, and then you ended up being a pastor. How'd that happen? Yeah. Um, I've asked myself that a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure many pastors do from time to time. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it was, I was, um, between the ages of um, uh, 14 and 16, late middle school, early high school, I, I began to have this sense. Um, and though I had a a moment where in that environment of, of church, uh, I felt like I, you know, accepted a call. It was over several years of having this sense that I would one day be, would one day be a pastor. Now that said, 
And I don't want to discount that sense of direction from such an early age not being calling. However, as I came to recognize the dysfunction I grew up in as I began years later to deal with the sexual abuse that that my siblings and I suffered growing up from uh, a pastor dad. Um, you know, I've since wondered often what kind of um, psychosis was at work mm. in me maybe wanting approval, falling in someone's footsteps to fix, to right-size, to... So it's, it's all very confusing and cloudy, and I can't claim to understand the nuances of how my mind and spirit um, and my soul all kind of function together in that. Sure. Um, I'm sure there were glimpses of the goodness of God's spirit showing up, and I also am convinced that there was a lot of chaos wrapped up in that. Um, I won't spend a lot of time in this, but, you know, you fast forward and you see the redemption that God plays in any of our lives to, to kind of take all the messiness and bring something good of it. But it was a very early age that I first sensed that I might be, I might be a pastor. I think some of that too was, you know, when I was, um, 12, 13, 14, I had, I had a pastor who used to call me his preacher boy. And, and with that, was this outside my family voice of someone who saw me, spoke into me, recognized some potential, whatever he called it, didn't matter at the time, it was he saw something in me. Um, there was another person outside my family, kind of a grandmotherly type, no blood relation, but she too spoke into me and saw something in me. And um, both those individuals loved me, called out the best in me, and I, I think I looked up to them more than I realized at the time. And and to this day, Grandma Lear and uh, John Haley are two people who mm. um, I believe God used to help me see something in myself I didn't see. Yeah, that's fascinating. When home is chaos, how important it is, those other voices of people that are positive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and part of that chaos too, Eric, was that um, you take the sexual abuse out of the scenario, and I grew up in a very Bible-centered um, Jesus conversation, prayer at every meal hmm. kind of home. Yeah. Where my mom for sure uh, spoke of trust in me and hope for me, which I believe was part of all the confusion then. How do you rectify uh, this story of love and grace and acceptance with abuse? Um, which happened both with grandparents and my dad. Um, that's a very confusing message uh, to to justify, rectify, reconcile um, some message of God's love with 
wait, what? That's being violated, you right. know, uh, in this very personal and intimate experience. So, yeah. How did you reconcile it? What did, what did that, how'd that work out in your life? It wasn't until I was in my thirties and all the sexual abuse came to light through one of my siblings. Before that, that though, I'm sorry, before that, did you, like, did you know it was there? I mean, obviously you knew it was there, but did you, how were you dealing with it before that came to light? I, I don't know because it wasn't until I was in my mid, mid early thirties that I actually began to have recall. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I, I would not have, uh, um, I, I lived through somehow, um, and God knows and psychologists have tried to explain how we have the capacity to hide, bury, remove ourselves from some sense of reality, um, that it took me years to look back and actually have any kind of reconciliation, any, any recognition of, of that pain, um, so I suppose, you know, if in some some conscious, unconscious kind of way, my response to all that growing up was to be perfect. Mm. That's not to say I was, but it was my goal. It became my my lifestyle, my life ambition was to get it right and perform and look okay and be okay at all times in all circumstances with everybody. And so I excelled, you know, when it came to Bible bowl, Bible quiz kind of things. And I excelled when it came to spiritual conversations. And, you know, I was the, I was the youth director at my small little church at age 12, you know? So I, I complied. (laughs) And that's not to say that, that, that was somehow void of a love for Christ and a pursuit of him, but it certainly was misguided in all the perfectionism. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you were trying to say, okay, I'm going to make this look good. Absolutely. Make sure I look good. Yeah. Okay. And so the shame of that, but it finally all came out, you know, so. Yeah. Well, take us into that story. Cause I'm guessing, you know, I often ask a question. I'll be curious to hear this, um, a little more, um, I'll ask a little more detail of not about what happened, but what your response of God to God was. I'll be interested in that, but I'm guessing that what happened next when that all came out is probably your darkest moment in your life. Oh my. Yeah. I mean, with that, with that phone call from my sister, it felt like the rug had been pulled out. Everything I'd known about family, about our, our, our family specifically um, was all up for grabs. It was all, it was all questioned. And, over the next two or three or four years, as I was in counseling just to deal with the abuse of trust and then begin to have my own recall, um, I began to be in touch with the deep, deep questions and sense of betrayal and anger that I had and began to discover that as as that season brought me into deep, deep depression and then suicidal ideation, that the work of shame that I now believe had driven much of my professionistic performance driven lifestyle growing up um, to hide and get it right and make sure everyone approves of me. Um, When that all began to crumble and my greatest 
fear overwhelmed me that if anyone knew the truth about me, not, not, not necessarily that I was abused, but it, all the coping mechanisms that come from years of covering and trying to be okay and not being honest with anybody about fears and thought life and, and behave, I, um, that all came crashing down with such force that the shame buried me and I wanted to, I wanted to end my life. Um, I know at some point you spent some time in a psychiatric facility because of the suicidal thoughts. Tell us that whole story. Yeah. So again, it was, it was over several years of inside of my counseling that, that, that I, that I believe though I got to the darkest point of my life and wanting to end it, I believe the the process of counseling up to that point may well have been a necessary part of me coming to the darkest point of my life. And I don't want to suggest at all that my counselor drove me to suicide. That's not the point. But that he helped me uncover and and get in touch with shame that I had denied and refused to face um, even though it became unbearable and overwhelming, everything about that process was critically important. And so when after too long a season of me not being able to get out of bed and not go to the office and not carry out my responsibilities as a student pastor, um, that my wife and counselor literally ran an intervention and took me to a hospital in Seattle where I could get help. Uh, they saved my life, quite honestly. Um, I, I hate to think, um, I hate to think of the possibility that I was at that time capable of ending my life, but I believe I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had just thought about how great it would be to be numb and gone, but I, you know, I'd considered ways it could happen and that's when the ideation um, really became a deep concern to my counselor and of course to my wife and and why the intervention happened and in that experience of coming face to face with this utter sense of hopelessness and this complete shroud of shame shame that was covering me uh, i had an immense amount of work to do. And I, I, I may have mentioned this to you before, Eric, that in those 11 days of inpatient treatment and 30 days of outpatient before, after that, um, I came to that believing it was an experience that every Christ follower should engage at some point. Um, not the mm-hmm. suicidal ideation, yeah. but the process of deep, deep, deep work uh, to explore um motives, my own soul, my own mind, to understand how my life had become a continual effort to endear people to me for approval and acceptance, uh, that every relationship, and I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and suggest that I didn't have any kind bone in my body or any sense of love in me, but it became really, really something to see 
just how much of my life and my relationships had had been about and when I say endearing, it takes manipulation to be that endearing. And so you know, dealing with truth that I was controlling was a hard, hard truth to accept. My wife had seen it for years. Um, I'd never been able to see it. I believed to see myself as a compliant, pleasing, easy to get along with kind of person uh, and missed my deep capacity to manipulate things, you know, and that and manipulation is all about getting things in an order that makes things okay for me. Mm-hmm. And that's how I spent too much of my life um, was to keep harmony. And, and, you know, motivation is such a huge, a huge factor in that. Um, keeping harmony, keeping peace is, is noble and um, a wonderful characteristic to have. However, when that, when the motivation for that harmony is to have everyone think the best of me and everyone be okay with me, then the motivation is whacked and messed up. Yeah. And it doesn't make for an outcome of harmony. That is the harmony that God intends in relationship. Yeah. There's an interesting way that that's actually self-serving, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to see if you don't, if that's what you're doing because you think you're trying to just help people. Uh, so hard to see. Um, and in contrast, I'll never forget, I had been through all this therapy. I was back in my church office. I didn't know how to behave. I was rebuilding my life. I was seeing every relationship and and journaling and having conversations with my wife and close friends about what motivated me and what was twisted up inside of me. And and in the process of all that, I had a call one day from the father of one of the students in our church. And he called me to talk about his son and wanted advice, wanted me to understand some things and talk about his hurt and challenge and helping his son. And I hung up the phone after that conversation. And for the first time, maybe ever, I was aware that I had listened with empathy to this dad and I hung up the phone with a sense that I did not handle that conversation in a way that had any concern about how I looked or sounded after the phone was hung up that I really just cared about this dad and his son. And I realized that I was at peace with not having all the answers. And I realized that I, I believed I had deeply felt, his pain and confusion. And I had just sat with him in it on the phone. And it was the most rewarding, gratifying sense of peace that this is what it's supposed to look like. And I haven't lived there for most all my life. And that's the part that, you know, had me looking back over my shoulder and thinking, man, every Christ follower should do this kind of intense work where you're not allowed to be dishonest. <laughs> yeah. Where um, the line of questioning and process of digging is is so revealing. Um, which again was what helped me understand I hadn't lived inside of grace 
you know, probably ever. Um, at least not to the extent that I learned to when everything gets pulled out into the light. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So I want to talk about your view of God through this whole thing. Yeah. Because it's very interesting. It's one thing to feel like you have to perform for people. It's a whole nother thing to feel like you're performing for God if that's what you were doing. But I'm curious, what was your conception of God before, during, and after that experience? So before, um, I would have, my stated perception would have been God's, God's a God of love. But, but honestly, growing up was this crazy mental, uh, chaotic frenzy of believing that God was going to be disappointed in me if I didn't get it right. And, uh, questioning always, that God was okay with me. I, I did not live growing up with any kind of understanding that God delighted in me. I, I didn't. I didn't look in the mirror and believe God loved me at my deepest, darkest, lowest moments, um, which I, you know, literally tried to ignore. But when they were, <laughs> yeah. when I couldn't ignore them, I certainly didn't didn't sense that God was happy with me. Um, I I certainly believed he was disappointed, and my job became to keep God from being disappointed in me. Um, and, and then walking through the darkness of of depression and and the recovery process, I came face to face with anger that I didn't know I had, and the suicidal ideation, of course, came by turning that anger inward toward myself. And the process of acknowledging and saying aloud to God how angry I was that, you know, where were you and why didn't you and how could you? Um, and granted, in that's a whole lot of blaming God, but um, but that was my that was my journey of anger, and it was off and on, and it was there for months. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that season, I was, I was pretty convinced that, you know, God was, I, convinced maybe is the wrong word, but I had, I had seasons of questions. Um, was God aloof? And who was this God that I had, I had been so faithful to, and He had been so unfaithful to me. Yeah. Um, now, that's not true, but that's that's, that's where I lived for. For some time, um, I remember giving, being given an assignment one day by my counselor after I was out of the hospital, and he asked me to, he asked me how long it had been since I read scripture or, you know, spent any time talking to God, and I, um, pretty flippantly, I, I don't know, I, it had been a while, and, and he asked me to go home, that week and find, one time in the seven days between our appointments to pick up a Bible and, and read. And he didn't care what I read. He wasn't asking me to do any kind of dissertation from what I read or even journal. He wanted me to um, note and write about how I felt as I read. Uh, not necessarily, again, a reflection on what I read, but how did I feel as I read? Yeah. 
And I remember sitting down in our living room on the edge of the couch because I didn't want to get too settled. I wanted to kind of stay in control apparently. And I, and I picked up, um, as a student pastor, I had a you know paperback NIV student study Bible. And I, and I picked that up and I, as soon as I picked it up, Eric, I felt heat rising from the bottom of my toes all the way up through my head. And I was furious. Wow. And I remember throwing the Bible across the room and looking up apparently because that's where God lives and um, <laughs> yeah. and saying, it was yelling at God. And I can't really know what I yelled. I just know it's furious and I yelled, I yelled loudly. And, and then I, and then I just sat and as soon as my yelling stopped and I was quiet, I had this undeniable, don't know where it came from kind of sense that God was still there, that he hadn't gone anywhere that he was okay with my yelling. He was okay with my anger, that what he wanted was for me to be real and know that he accepted me where I was, as I was, regardless how I was. And, and it was a significant pivot point for me um, to have this experience I'd not had before that God loved me right where I was. Yeah. That's, that sounds like a Psalm kind of moment to me, right? When you, there's so many Psalms that cry out and pour out their thoughts and feelings and anger, even at God. And then right. stop, right. And just let him be there. And he's faithful to show up and it sounds like you were able to feel his love in that moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I think that was possible because of the experience I had coming home initially from the hospital where at an assignment to go to my wife and three close friends and individually one at a time, sit down with them and tell them everything about me. And, and that was frankly a two hour, two and a half hour conversation with each person, starting with my wife and, and nothing was to be left out. And I didn't leave anything out. All the fears, all the anxiety, all the wrong um, that I wanted to hide from everybody. I, I dumped and, um, at the end of each of those conversations, each person leaned to me or stood and pulled me up and embraced me mm. tightly. And, and pretty much, pretty much each one said, there's nothing you could do, nothing you'll ever do, nothing you've done that would make me love you less. I love you. And it was in those moments that I raised in the church it was in those moments I really, I really experienced grace for the first time. And I think those moments made it possible for me to actually accept and embrace this sense from God in that living room when I was so angry that he actually didn't go anywhere. I didn't shove him away with my anger or my yelling. And I think it's because... You know, and I, again, I, I don't believe we can't experience love. We can't experience radical acceptance or grace outside of relationship. It's not a, it's not a concept that just kind of settles in our head. It's not a truth that we just happen across and decide to embrace. It, that that can't be experienced in any other way than relationship. And I think the reason so many of us have such a horrible perception of God is because 
of the lack of grace we've accepted or experienced from people in our lives. And when many of us spend a lifetime trying to please, please parents and coaches and pastors and spouses um, and feeling like we're failing, it's no wonder that we haven't figured out or learned how to embrace this radical acceptance and delight that God takes in us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so interesting because what what you found is you had this spiritual experience with God and then you had this a similar experience with people with your community, right? Where Yeah. And maybe even maybe even uh reverse. You know, I think I experienced it um through them human beings first. Sure. Um, and, and then I was actually able to, well, maybe it's actually possible that not only do these people accept me, but, you know, God does too. Um, I remember being asked in the hospital, um, Eric, by one of my therapists, um, you know, what, what's, what are you most challenged with right now? And, and at one point my answer was, I don't know how to accept myself. And she said, is that really the question or is it a matter of you accepting the fact that God accepts you? Yeah. And, and I realized um, as I processed that carefully that the only way to accept myself was to accept that God accepts me. Um, yeah. Knowing that he knows everything about, I still deceive myself, um, but but accepting that God knowing everything about me, even the things that I can't even discern yet. And he loves me where I am. Uh, that's the only thing that makes it possible for me to accept me with my flaws as I am physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. I, this is me. And this is where I am today. And I can accept that. Oh, I love that, Mark. So, one of the thoughts I'm having is the way we talk about ourselves so often is problematic in the church. You know, yes. like if there's so many ways that, you know, you'll hear somebody pray sometimes in, those, in church and they'll say, Oh, we don't know why you love us. Right. Or we don't deserve your love. And certainly I guess we don't, but that's not about deserve. Right. It's just about him. It's not. And, and I think, I think too, and uh, I'm open a can here that we don't have time to <laughs> sure. really dump. But um, I, I think in many of our evangelical circles, we've spent way more time talking about a doctrine of original sin over a doctrine of original creation. Yeah, and it's in the earliest part of the scriptures that we embrace that we learn that God created man and woman in his image. And there's never a time after that, that that statement of reality is revoked. It remains true all the way through the story of humanity that God created us in his image. And that God said of that creation, it's it's good, it's really good. And and so I think, and not to deny that we that we mess up the harmony and the relationship 
And in that we sin that God intended and God created us for. However, I think we, we, we do look so poorly at not only ourselves as human beings, but therefore on others as human beings, as though the only truth about us is that we are depraved and lost and undone. When, when in, <laughs> at the deepest part of us, it is a tremendous blessing and joy and beauty that we are somehow divinely human. And that's not to put us equal with God, but that is to say that the divine created us in his image. Somewhere inside of that is some sense of wonderful creation that we fail and refuse to embrace about ourselves or other people. Absolutely. Yeah, I think if we start the gospel at Genesis 3, you end up in yeah. one place. And if you start the gospel yep. at Genesis 1, you start in a whole other place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you're just talking my language. I'm sitting here at my desk, and I'm glad my kids aren't in here looking at me with my arms in the air going, yes, that's right. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I just think and that's of course, so And, of course, saying that, saying that a lot is one thing, you know, and, and seeing how often I still struggle to live it is another, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it goes to just partly the voices that we have coming into us theologically don't help. But then also, uh, yeah, and as your story shows, we also create these structures for ourselves that help us try to feel better or look better or be a better person, uh, Yeah, you know, for both God and for people. Right, right. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So that that's quite a story, um, and yet you know it's just beautiful the way that God. And I'm sure it was hard, not diminishing that at all. But moving from, you know, being feeling like a Pharisee or being a Pharisee to being a person full of grace and experiencing it for the first time. Yeah, yeah there aren't words. Honestly, there aren't words. And um, when I say of my wife, you know, that's her grace and her patience that have even allowed us to celebrate 36 years this past fall. I, it's really true. And, and yes, it's true that it's God's grace, but I think sometimes we, again, mm. discount the power and the wonder, and the beauty of human life and human relationship through which we experience God's grace, through which we even know anything about relationship. And so it's easy to kind of gloss over and say, and I mean, no, no disrespect to this, but to say, yeah, God saved my marriage. When the truth is that God showed up to the way my wife loved me and stuck with me and showed me grace and patience and took over responsibilities in our home that she shouldn't ever have taken on by herself. And she lived as a single mom for the better part of a year and a half because I was emotionally disconnected and undone and and she really is the one and still one of a few who showed me what love looks like um i i read the bible you know and had it read to me all my life and saw and heard the stories of jesus and the way he he loves but that doesn't get experienced except through relationship again, as I said earlier. And yeah. as my wife um, 
lived that lifestyle with me and practiced forgiveness and acceptance. And all along, she bore the burden of hurt and pain, not just for me, but from me. Um, it's just, it's just, it's remarkable to live inside of a, though imperfect, still grace-filled relationship where the wonder of who Jesus is shows up through this beautiful person and persons, because um, it hasn't just been her, but it certainly has been her in the most intimate way that has shown me what love looks like. Um, that allows me then to understand, or at least in part, <laughs> I don't, I yeah. don't understand God's love in full. I just, I don't, I'm not capable. I keep being surprised at the scandalous nature <laughs> of his grace and love. So, well, that's why the show's called halfway there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll always be growing in that. I, I believe personally, even in eternity, we're never going to fully grasp who the Lord is because he's infinite. And so we'll always Absolutely. be learning something new. Um, yeah. And I don't want to brag. There's no bragging in this, except I just, the more, the more, the more I understand that God is mystery, the more comfortable I become with mystery. And um, the more comfortable I am in not knowing, you know, most of my knowing is what I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and trusting through, you know, a sense of uncertainty is, is where real faith lies. Um, and that's, that's what I'm still learning. Oh yeah. I love that. Well, I want to, at least we need to talk about more about what you're doing now. Um, and I want to, want to get that out there. So, uh, we might skip a little ways there. I know you were a pastor again, um, at Granger and we, you talk a lot about that and, uh, but you're, you're doing some, some coaching and some, some uh, other kinds of things like that. Now, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll fast forward quite a bit. So um, the truth is, um, out of college, I've had this kind of uh, revolving door on um, staff, ministry staff roles in local church and marketplace. So I've kind of been in and out of both. And while my last... 18 years was spent serving a church. Um, everything in each season of my careers, I'll use that phrase, that word, um, has built on the one before it. And in every one of those, it's been about people. It's been about valuing people. And as I've come to understand how God's wired me and I've begun to look at this kind of last season of 20 or 25 years of my life, um, out of the story that we just unpacked, um, out of a process to understand not just my story, but core talents and values, my life is all about helping broken people um, be connected to God's unconditional love, his hope, and his healing. And that means that I really want to help places where people gather, local churches, where people look for hope and help and healing, that that we become communities that are willing and vulnerable and courageous enough to 
not just embrace, but tell our story to even as Christ followers acknowledge that our full story, our, our whole story, the only way we understand hope is to talk about the hope of seasons in our lives. The only way we understand anything of joy is to talk about the dark seasons we've experienced. And and so to become communities of faith where others who are looking for hope and healing can find ordinary people who are on the same journey they're on. And though they've come to surrender as they know how to a lifestyle and a way of Jesus, still on this journey of trying to figure it out. I, I want to come alongside leaders and pastors and churches to help in any way I can. How are we going to create that kind of environment for people? And then secondly, to come alongside individuals who are interested in, in looking at their own lives and considering how is it I impact my own story? How is it do I that I understand God's redemptive work? How do I tap um, to understand the core talents he's packed inside of me, the values that are so critically important to me. So I live my life aligned with who God made me to be, uh, not just in my vocation, but in my family, in my neighborhood, um, in my personal life and relationships. Um, what's that look like? And so that's a life plan coaching process that uh, I'm embracing and Again, trying to come alongside people. I suppose if there's any word or phrase that defines where I am right now in this season is to come alongside. Um, whether, again, it's individuals or organizations, even in the marketplace. Um, I, such joy, if I have opportunity to help a company or a team or an organization of any kind see people as people and not objects yeah. to see people as beautiful human beings and not a means to the end uh, to understand that <laughs> whether business or church, it, it's all it's relationship. And if we can value others as God intended us to be valued, um, my goodness, uh, there's, the, the lifestyle of Jesus shows up in all that. And um, and that's what I want to be about. So that's how I'm intending to live out the last, uh, the last uh, 20, 30, I don't know, 40, if, if that's uh, what happens, but you know, that's a long time. So, yeah. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And I really appreciate, uh, you know, the calling that you have. It's, it seems very natural based on everything that you've shared already, uh, that that would be the place that you would go. And um, you certainly have the experience, and you have the you have the the credibility to say to churches, mm. "Hey, this is this is the experience that I have." But then it was interesting, um, you know. I thought we were there to talk about being welcoming or whatever, right? But then you started to talk about. I think it was in that second session about let's talk about people's stories and let's try to accept people, um, yeah. which is some of what we shared today, and that is a whole different conversation, right? That's a deeper conversation. So you were really driving us to accept people in a different way and, uh, and, and more meaningfully. Yeah. And, and that really is, um, that's my heart. And, uh, you know, inside of my whole season of depression, suicidal ideation, you know, was, the was the discovery of a mental health issue that, um, I believe is a part of this whole 
requirement for us to meet people where they are and unpack stories is if we embrace the whole story, then then we're going to accept people who are suffering and struggling with mental illness. And um, and again, however it's labeled in a counselor's office or in a church pew, um, to accept people where they are and walk with them um, is is what is what this beautiful journey of humanity is about. Um, to just sit with people where they are and help them discover the goodness of which God made them. And I think it's what we see in Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. This continual, continual, continual call to be redeemed and and live out the beauty and wonder and mystery of what it is to be connected to an eternal, <laughs> unfathomable God who accepts us right where we are as yeah. his dear, dear children in creation. Yes. Amen. Well, if people want to find you, they can find your website because people matter.com. Yes. And there's a, there's a number of ways to connect to you there so they can just go there. You'll, you'll see everything friends because people matter.com. Anything else you want to leave us with Mark? Uh, just that it's, um, it's tremendously gratifying to have the kind of conversation that you've invited me into. <laughs> and, um, the more conversations I have and the people I get to meet across the country who honestly are embracing the simplicity of what we call the gospel, and that is to embrace that God is love, um, that we have a lot to learn about how to do that, and, um, and how humbling it is to live inside a human relationship where we accept and are accepted, where we're known and we're known, where we know and we're known. And um, and so I'm, I'm just, I'm honored to met you, to discover that heartbeat inside of you. And um, I am filled with hope and an otherwise dark and bleak and horrible story people paint of our, of our universe. Yeah. And, um, and see the fingerprint of God in more ways and places than the news tells and most Christ followers are willing to see um, and we need to see it and embrace it and uh, live that hope with people. Amen. Amen. All right, friends, you can find links to everything we talked about today. I'll throw some links to Mark's books and his website at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Go check that out. And uh, thanks, Mark, for being here. Honored. Thank you so much, Eric. All right. Keep the faith, guys. Keep the faith, guys.